Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that always thinks, you know, this will be an easy, fun, light, easy breezy episode, and then it turns into something way more intense. Of course it does. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 126, and today we're going to be pondering something super light, fashion as an art form and personal style as a personal creative expression. This episode is a whole journey. We'll get started with personal style as a creative expression, and we'll ask ourselves, did we ruin that with all of these dumb style rules around age, gender, body shape, race, etc., all of them? We'll explore this idea via audio essays from three members of the Clothes Horse community, Taylor, Anna, and Gladys. I'm so excited for all of you to hear them. I'll go ahead and say that, yes, I am super hormonal and super emo today, but each of these brought a little lump to my throat and then tiny, blissful tears of joy, so I can't wait for you to hear them. After that, yes, I told you, this episode is a whole journey. We'll be joined by my friend Elizabeth, who will tell us about all of the work and thought that goes into producing fashion shows. I thought this was an important conversation to have for two reasons. Number one, like all things related to fashion and style, fashion shows tend to be dismissed as foolish and easy to put together when the reality is that they require a lot of hard work, critical thinking, and creativity. And the number two reason for wanting all of you to hear this conversation is that ultimately, Fashion shows remind us that before fashion became synonymous with a cruel, destructive industry, it was and remains an art form. See, so much for a light and easy episode. Guess that's just not how we roll around here. So let's get started with our audio essays from members of our community. Earlier this year, I don't even know, was it February? It's hard for me to say. This year has gone so fast. Anyway, I recorded a series of episodes with special guest Audrey about personal style. Go give those a listen. One thing we kept coming back to was these rules that whether we like it or not, have weaseled their way deep into our brains. And you know what? It's hard to get them out of there. I asked all of you to contribute your own experiences with style and these so-called rules. I have so many thoughts and feelings about the three essays I'm about to share with you. Originally, I was going to play one, share my reaction, repeat, repeat, etc. But Ultimately, as I assembled them, I realized that I wanted you to hear them in this specific order on their own. So we're going to listen to them now with musical interludes in between from Dustin. Thank you, Dustin. I'll be back at the end to share my thoughts. And one last thing, these stories include a lot of conversation about our relationships with our bodies. So if that's triggering for you, which I totally understand, go ahead and skip them. Hi, Amanda. My name is Taylor, and I'm a seller of secondhand clothing online. My shop is called the Sweet Honey Thrift Shop, and I sell cute vintage and modern clothes, mainly on Depop, but also anywhere I can sell them, really. If anyone wants to find me, I'm at Sweet Honey Thrift Shop on Instagram or 
at Sweet Honey Thrift Shop, all one word, on Depop. Well, your discussion with Audrey about these style rules, quote unquote, and how, like lots of other rules that we follow, um, they are arbitrary, it really resonated with me and this kind of journey that I've been on with my personal style for really as long as I can remember. Um, I loved clothing and style from a super young age. I would patiently await the limited two catalog. And when I got it, I would circle everything I wanted and start planning outfits in my head. I love those shirts with the Velcro across the chest that you could, you know, spell out your own message on. Wow, what I would give to get my hands on one of those today. Um, one super distinct style memory of mine is from second grade when after I begged and pleaded to my parents, they allowed me to dress myself for, um, for school photo day. I still have this photo to this day. It's actually on my Instagram. If you want to go see it at sweet honey underscore thrift shop. Um, and I wore this black quarter sleeve top that had electric bright blue faux fur trim around the neckline and the sleeves. And I just remember feeling on that picture day like the baddest bee in elementary school. Nobody on the playground could tell me anything that day. (laughs) And really, you know, that little girl's style ethos and her style values are still the same. I love expressive clothing that's fun and unique and that tells a story. I am mixed race. My dad is black and my mom is white. And until I was about eight years old, we lived in West Philadelphia as a family. Our community was super diverse and it was great. Um, Then around the time I was going into first grade, my parents moved our family to the suburbs of Philadelphia where the community and most of my peers were predominantly white. What happened then Um, Now, in retrospect, I understand, although at the time I didn't really know what was going on, was this gradual understanding of mine that I was definitely somehow different, that I and my family were not normal somehow. Um, From countless comments from everyone, adults and children alike, um, on my curly hair or my tan skin, to just noticing from spending more time with Um, white friends and their families, how different my family looked and how different our holidays looked and the foods we ate and the traditions we followed. Um, You know, just realizing and feeling like an other. So not like I was part of the big main group, you know. And so I became really shy and quiet and my clothing sense and my dress sense reflected that. Um, I think it was all in an attempt to not stand out and to not draw any more intention to myself than what I already felt like I always received for just being who I am, (laughs) for being black and being not white in this predominantly white space. And this is not to say that I was dressing, you know, in like muted tones or super modestly, that wasn't the case. It was more so that I just dressed the same way as everyone around me. And um, I really sort of was following mainstream trends when on the inside, what I really wanted to do was wear, you know, not clothing that was any better or, or worse than the mainstream style, but just different. And then also, you know, uh, around the end 
of middle school and into high school, I definitely started to experiment with clothing that expressed my sensuality and my sexuality a little bit more um, as those things were developing, you know, within me. Like, I definitely went through a phase in high school where I was wearing the ultra, ultra padded push-up bra, even though I have no boobs at all, um, with tons of cleavage, or I loved wearing, like, tight, like, you know, like the hardtail and solo pants that accentuated my butt and made it look really good. Uh, I loved it. I loved celebrating my body through clothing that accentuated it. Um, And I don't think I thought this poetically or profoundly about it at the time, but looking back, that's definitely what happened. And I think that was a cool time period for me. Um, And when I entered into college, you know, I'm becoming more educated. I'm slowly seeing more of the world. Uh, And I think some of my true personal style did start to come back into play. Definitely, definitely not yet my fullest expression of what it could be. Um, I was still dressing within the mainstream of style, but, you know, at college, I made some incredible friends who I was always with and I was always surrounded by. I mean, we literally traveled in packs. um, And I also lived in New Orleans, where creativity and self-expression are just highly, highly celebrated. And so I definitely think over the four years of college, um, especially towards the end, I was more in touch with my, you know, innermost stylista, but I think I was still suffocating myself with this need to fit in as much as I could. I was still in a predominantly white crowd and I still felt othered. Um, But, you know, overall, looking back at that time, up until that point, I think that was when I was the most in touch with my authentic sense of style. But, you know, after college, I was no longer surrounded by this support network of friends all the time and this big social scene and this unique utopia that was New Orleans. Um, I entered the world quite literally because I spent a really big chunk of time traveling and living abroad, but also figuratively as many of us do around that age, you know, just entering into adulthood (laughs) quote unquote, adulting or whatever. Well, in my adulting, um, now on top of the attention I got that I never really ever stopped getting for being half black, for being racially ambiguous, um, I also now am trying to avoid this male gaze that I'm feeling constantly, which I definitely felt in college, but I also always had this like big squad of girlfriends having my back and we all had each other's backs. And, um, but then when you're on your own, you know, that sort of male attention and the male gaze, especially when you're wearing outfits where you do look sexy, um, you know, or or traditionally feminine, it was just overwhelming to me. And I felt unsafe a lot. And I started to dress down also to avoid that. Um, So I'm still just kind of doing a lot to blend in and not stand out. And again, it's not to say that I was like not involved in style and fashion. I certainly, certainly was. And I've always presented myself well and dressed nicely and, you know, been, you know, hip and cool, despite how not hip and cool saying hip and cool makes me sound. (laughs) It was, again, just not my truest expression of self and of style, but I still looked good. It just wasn't authentic or as authentic as it could be. Well, 
Now, I moved back to the U.S. about a year ago, and I found Depop when I got back, and opening my shop has been quite literally a dream come true. I am in love with Depop and the community of style lovers on there, and it's just this beautiful, beautiful space where, for the first time, I think, probably ever in my life, I feel like my personal and true, truest style style is being embraced, and not just by one person, but by a bunch of people. Um, And so... I'm just having a blast selling, you know, sexy vintage lingerie and cool Y2K party tops and, you know, 90s sweaters that have huge faux fur trim. Um, I'm selling my dream clothes. And each time I sell a more sort of eclectic or out there item to a customer, I'm overjoyed for them that they will actually be wearing it. Um, This piece that I would have sitting in my closet Um, and never wear because, not because I don't like it, but because I would never feel comfortable or confident enough to rock it. Um, And, you know, I don't want to feel like that anymore. And I don't want anyone else to feel like that either. I still don't think I'm dressing in my dream way. I sell these clothes online and that's my outlet for style. But when I'm going out myself, I'm not expressing myself in this bold way. And I'm still dressing down to avoid this unwanted attention. Um, But writing this and sharing it here has been super cathartic for me already. I can feel it helping me get closer towards, you know, a day where I'm actually dressing, you know, in a way that makes me feel feel fulfilled and excited um, because there's no feeling quite like that feeling of wearing an outfit that lights your heart on fire and makes you feel fabulous, just like I did in that blue fur trim top in second grade. It's a pretty unbelievable feeling and... I want to feel that way more often. I want all of us to feel that way more often. So thank you so much for having me on here. And again, you can find me at sweethoney underscore thrift shop on Instagram or sweethoneythriftshop, one word on Depop. I really appreciate you, Amanda, and the entire Clothes Horse community for just making and being a space where I feel welcomed and understood so often. Bye. I'm a very long-time listener, and I may or may not have appeared on this podcast before. I heard that one rule about no miniskirts after 30, but that's not the one that uh, bothers me. It's the crop tops that bothers me the most. Um, A little pre-story. At the end of my pregnancy, at age of 24, I got a bunch of very thick purple-red stretch marks all over my stomach. Like, just a few days before that... There was nothing on my stomach, and then suddenly I looked like I have been attacked by a lynx or something. Um, Before I ever formed my own opinion about it, a member of my family who happened to see my stomach said, Oh wow, no more two-piece swimsuits for you, girl. (laughs) Something like that. Uh, I don't really remember anymore. I didn't even get offended back then, uh, but my brain interpreted this one opinion of one person as an absolute truth and a rule that cannot be ever broken. It surely didn't help either that I never saw uh, stomachs like mine in any clothes ads or any anywhere else really online or offline. Um, so I'm sad to say, but my stomach hasn't seen daylight for 10 years. 
But then last year I somehow ended up on the Instagram profile of the British swimsuit company uh, U-Swim that has incredibly diverse models. And there for the first time I saw somebody who looked like me wearing a two-piece swimsuit. Um, and even this one source somehow completely changed my mind. I, I, re I just didn't feel like that was something to hide anymore. I suddenly realized this is something I can wear. Um, but what about crop tops? You see, I have never actually worn crop tops, even though I, I like them a lot. Because before my pregnancy, like pretty early, I was too young and sh kind of shy. I don't know. I didn't really feel like doing it. And now I'm over 30 and I feel like I'm perhaps too old and also maybe not slim enough. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even sure why I think that. Probably because I never see um, crop tops in the media being worn by people my age or size. Um, this is the scariest part. I'm, I'm clearly brainwashed and can't even point out by whom. I think this no miniskirts and crop tops after 30 rules is somehow... Some sort of um, collective hallucination phenomenon. I don't know. Anyway, last summer I actually wore a crop top a couple of times. Um, the skies didn't fall. I felt good and comfortable and it's it was fun. So this upcoming summer I'm definitely embracing it further. I actually sued a few pretty cute crop tops myself. So now there is no excuse. Um, I also got a beautiful tattoo on my stomach of a moth. Um, not to cover the imperfections, the placement is such that you can still see all of my stretch marks. Just thought it would be a good addition to my tattoo collection. So yeah, planning on rocking crop tops during summer 2022. And I hope to see more of mid-size, plus-size, 30+, plus, 40+, plus, 70+, plus people out there rocking crop tops and miniskirts as well. Okay, thank you, bye-bye. Gladys Strickland. I live in Daytona Beach, Florida, and I am 58 years old. One advantage to having been around a few additional years is realizing that many style rules and expectations are nothing more than bullshit. I heard so many style rules through the years. Don't wear white after Labor Day. You must have a new spring dress for Easter, and you wear it even if a cold front comes through and the temperature is freezing. Skirts are shorter. No weight. Longer. Jeans are waist high. No low rise. No weight. Somewhere else this year. Those rules were often said out loud. Others, however, were more subtle. Watching my mother struggle to put on her girdle before getting dressed for church taught me that looking right meant having to change your body to fit the current style. Listening to her and her friends talk about the appearance of other women, I quickly picked up on the importance of dressing your age. I didn't understand what the magic number was that put you past your prime, nor did I understand why someone shouldn't wear clothes if they looked good in them. Sadly, I now realize that I was buying into a style rule of what it meant to look good in something.
Are perfect legs needed to wear a miniskirt or shorts that stop mid-thigh? Is a flat belly required for a bikini? I've never had either. And my belly only pooched out more after one pregnancy and weight gain and loss. While my ab muscles are tight thanks to planks and crunches, the skin that covers them is flabby, and the only fix is surgery. Then there are the stretch marks that now decorate my abdomen. My body did this amazing thing and grow another human, yet I am supposed to hide the evidence of that. And I never thought my arms were a problem until, in my mid-40s, I heard a doctor talk to other medical personnel about bat wings. What are bat wings? You know, that flabby bit of flesh that hangs down when you hold your arms out to your sides. Wiggle your arms, and they flap around a bit. After hearing that comment, I doubled down on tricep dips and other toning exercises. Fifteen years later, I can report that the flabby skin remains. Again, only surgery will take care of that. When I reflect on all the style rules I have heard and believed, I realize they revolve around three things. One, the way your body looks. Two, the age your body is. And three, you will need to regularly buy new things in order to be stylish. You should avoid certain things if you are over a certain size. Horizontal stripes make you look bigger and wear a lot of black because it's slimming. Cover up the parts that don't meet the ideal. And if your body isn't made for the clothes, like my hourglass figure won't work with a straight silhouette, then you need to make your body fit into them, not the other way around. And then we get to the age-related rules. Jeez, no long hair after a certain age. No mini skirts when you cross a certain day on the calendar. I hate to let people know this, but at my age, my hair still is long. And my skirts, often short. And what about the constant need to buy something to be in the latest style? New clothes are constantly pushed on us along with the reminder that it is new and stylish or fashionable. If we don't participate, we are, well, I don't know. What are we? And there isn't a focus on taking what we already have and wearing it in a new way. Oh no, we need new clothes to keep up with everyone else feeling the need to keep up as well. Enough. Trying to dress in a way that pleases me while also meeting expectations I've heard much of my life is exhausting. Therefore, I resolve to throw out all those rules and replace it with one guideline. Are you ready for it? How do I want to feel? What am I feeling on the inside that I want to express by the clothes I wear each day? Some days it is sexy, others it is all business. Sometimes it is playful, others casual. Once I discover how I want to feel that day, then I choose the clothes to wear that reflect that. 
It is a new way of thinking that takes trial and error. Some days I go through multiple outfits before I find what works. I have made several attempts at being fashionable throughout my life, but none of them stuck. Why? Because none of them were true to me. I was adopting someone else's look, not finding my truth. Now, I start with me and go from there. As I adopt this new way of choosing what to wear, I'm noticing several things. At first glance in the mirror, I often like what I see. Then, that ugly voice in my head starts in, pointing out all the flaws on display. Your hips are too wide in those jeans. If you turn to your side, anyone can see that your belly isn't flat. Those two colors do not go together. You look silly wearing them. And the worst, what will people say? That voice must be shut out. I go back to that first glance in the mirror. Did I get a tingle at what I saw? If so, I stay with it. While other people may notice what I wear and have some mental comments on it, I also realize I spend more time critiquing my body than anyone else. So what if they question why I am wearing a skirt that short with legs like mine? I am finding combinations and tweaks that help me dress quickly on busy mornings. It can be fun to play around with outfits when I have time, but stressful when I don't. On those days, I grab a go-to outfit and carry on. A few months ago, I cleaned out my closet, determined to let go of things that made me feel bad when I wore them. Before I could donate them, however, I discovered ways to style them that do work for me. A tuck here, a cuff there, some different accessories, and I put new life into my wardrobe without spending a dollar. While I try to buy most of my clothes at the thrift store, I'm happy to be able to find new ways to wear what I already own, ways that reflect the true me. This isn't an instant change, a switch that I can flip and be done with all those thoughts about the rules I am breaking. It is slow, and I work on it every day. But I hope this doesn't deter you from trying it. Let go of all the style rules you have listened to, and instead, listen to that voice inside of you, the one that goes hell yes when you look in the mirror wearing something that reflects who you really are. Imagine what the world would be like if the majority of people dressed in a way that made them feel good about themselves. I hope to see this be a reality in my lifetime. Thank you so much to Taylor, Anna, and Gladys. They make it look easy, but I promise that writing down your thoughts, reading them out loud, recording them, it's not easy. So thank you so much for taking the time to put these together. And even more importantly, for being vulnerable with all of us. In an effort to use less paper, and because honestly, when I'm taking notes, sometimes I can't read my own handwriting, I've been doing this new thing where I type out notes using the notes app on my computer while I'm listening to audio and editing, etc. 
And wow, I feel like I typed out page after page of thoughts while I was listening to these essays because they were just so good. All three members of our community talked about the power of our clothing. Something that, by the way, I just, you know, got to say this again, clothing gets dismissed as frivolous and meaningless all the time. I mean, we know otherwise. Our clothing has this power to make us feel a certain way, whether it's a particularly fierce ensemble for elementary school picture day or what you wear to work in the real world or from home or the outfits we choose for special days, clothing shapes our mindset. Uncomfortable clothes, meaning physically or mentally uncomfortable, can ruin an entire day. The right outfit makes you feel like you are, to quote Mazzy Starr, a superstar in your own private movie. It can also make you feel anonymous and camouflaged. And you know what? Sometimes that's what we want. Clothing gives us the ability to fit in or stand out. We may not be able to change colors to blend in with our background, but clothing does give humans a bit of like chameleon style magic. It goes without saying that an outfit chosen for us by someone else, whether that's a uniform or just something dictated by society, can actually strip us of our own personal identity. I mean, that's the whole point of uniforms, right? To make you less the individual and more the student or the worker. And I would argue that these rules around what we can wear – They attempt to strip us of our own creative expression and freedom. Everybody's audio essays resonated with me in different ways, and all of them reminded me of ways in which my gender, age, and place in life have lent me a different set of expectations around what I could or could not wear. You've already heard me talk about my mother's really cruel insistence that I cut my hair short because I've passed some sort of mythological age where we must all cut off our hair and don a pair of sensible slacks and shoes. But that wasn't the first time I really felt the pressure to change my style and appearance. And shockingly, it goes back to my early 20s when I had my daughter, Dylan. I was 23 when Dylan was born, an age that seems practically embryonic in hindsight. Like, yeah, I was technically adult and I had been living on my own and caring for myself for many years at that point. But wow, there was and remains so much to learn. And I'm recording this episode on Mother's Day, a holiday that brings me continuous sadness and despair. I've been waiting for that to get better over the years, but it actually only seems to get worse. Like, I might sound like I'm having a blast as I'm recording this, but I'm I'm depressed today. I woke up with a big, just a big dark cloud hanging over me, and it's kind of been coming in for a few days. I knew it was going to be here, and yes, I don't want to care or feel that way, but that's where I am, Right. One cause of the sense of loss I have around Mother's Day actually stems from my experiences as a young single mother. You know, the United States is ostensibly built from freedom and individualism, sometimes to a fault. Yet, as a whole, 
Americans feel totally cool and justified in shitting upon people who are having a hard time, right? As a single mother and one who looked especially young, I was the focus of so much disdain from strangers, coworkers, and you know what? So-called friends. I was a social pariah. Strangers on the street, people who'd never met me before, didn't know my name or any of my circumstances, would ask me, how does it feel to be a drain on the system? Employers didn't want to hire me because I guess I wouldn't be available all the time because I had a kid. I was told by people who cared about me that I was lucky that someone would choose to date me. And those who dared to date me saw me as someone who could be controlled and abused. And BTW, lest you think these sentiments and behaviors are a relic of a not-so-distant past, well, go check out Reddit, where I saw posts last week that began with, I fucking hate single mothers. They are ruining our society. Cool story, bro. The mere fact that I had a child was thrown in my face as proof that I was slutty or uneducated or unworthy of respect. I was damaged goods. And so I felt this pressure to deny any sexuality on my part in an effort to play down the fact that I was a single mother. As someone said to me years later, I don't understand why people are weird about you having a kid. Is it because there's proof that you had sex at least one time? Yeah, it really is that simple. Uh, apparently, it that proof was enough to make me a pariah. So I felt like I had to be covered at all times. If you're a single mom and you're too sexy, then people build all these very cliche narratives about you, that you're desperately looking for a sugar daddy, or you're just a victim of your uncontrollable horniness. That's how you got pregnant in the first place, right? Or you're a bad mom who doesn't care about your kids and just wants a man really, really badly. I love my kid, and I have no regrets, but I've never wanted mother to be the first word associated with my name. Because you know what? I'm smart. I'm a good friend. I'm a hard worker. I'm super funny. And I'm also someone's mom. But the stigma of being a single mother meant that while I couldn't dress too sexy, I also couldn't look too mom-like, whatever that means. Imagine having to walk this stupid line every day while getting dressed. It's even more painful and confusing when you're a person who loves style as a creative expression. Okay, so today I have to be modest, but not too modest. Appealing, but not, you know, too appealing. Like, what the fuck is that? Apparently it has something to do with dresses that aren't too short, but also not too long. Necklines that are high, but, you know, not too high. Prints and colors that are eye-catching, but, you know not too eye-catching. Blend in, but don't blend in. Easy peasy, right? Also, don't look too poor or messy because your kid will be taken away from you, but don't look too put together or rich because then everyone will assume that you're spending too much money and too much time on your appearance and therefore neglecting your kid. So dumb. (laughs) That's all I can say. But I 
dealt with this every day, every day for a really long time. I'm not the only one. This is how our society treats women. This is how our society treats mothers. And this is how our society treats single mothers. It's interesting to look at these rules and ideas around clothing as a collective group hallucination, as Anna referred to them. When you take that perspective, it all seems pretty foolish. We can laugh at Henny Penny for getting everyone whipped up into hysteria about the sky falling. So maybe we can also laugh at everyone for believing, without any facts to back it up, that women over 30 can't wear miniskirts or people with stretch marks can't wear crop tops. Fuck all of that noise. Style rules are bullshit, as Gladys says. Ultimately, style rules are about control and about fueling a consumer economy. Feel like you need to fit in? Buy more stuff to get there. The problem is these rules ruin style as a personal creative expression, and they lead to, you guessed it, overconsumption as we try on costume after costume, trying to find the one that feels the most comfortable for us. Instead of, just as Gladys says, Dressing for how we want to feel, how we want to feel. And then finding our community, like Taylor did, where everyone sees us as the star and style icon that we really are. Don't let an industry dictate your personal style. Don't let internet trolls and real-life old-school trolls dictate your personal style. Your personal life should not have a dress code. Thanks again to Taylor, Anna, and Gladys for these amazing audio essays. I'll be the first to admit that it is uncomfortable, if not downright scary, to be vulnerable about my own experiences. But I also realize that people like you will see themselves in my stories and know that they're not alone. And there's comfort in that, right? And by talking about these things, we both normalize openness and begin conversations about how we and society can do better for one another. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. 
Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. So you all know by now that while I currently live in Austin, Texas, I actually consider Portland, Oregon my home. I moved there after the roller coaster year in which my partner died and my daughter was born. It seemed like the right place to recover. I've lived there off and on throughout my adult life, and I'm sure I'll end up there again. One of the friends I made in Portland is Elizabeth, and you're going to meet her today. She's been an integral part of the Portland fashion scene since the early aughts, from producing fashion shows to covering Portland's designers and boutiques for the Portland Mercury. She's also an animal lover, very important to me, and an all-around kind, lovely person, also very important to me. Today, she's going to explain the ins and outs of fashion shows. So let's jump right in. 
All right, Elizabeth, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, my name is Elizabeth Molo, and among other things, I, I guess I want to talk about all the jobs I do. I'm the inventory and operations manager at Alter. Um, I am a seamstress, specifically I sew Greek Orthodox vestments, but one of my other jobs and what we're going to be talking about today is that I am a fashion show producer. So many jobs, and they're all like kind of different. So just for everyone who's listening, I actually have known Elizabeth for a long time um, because she is a Portlander, and she's friends with my friend Alana, who I think I'm pretty sure I was thinking about this the other day. I think Alana was my first friend in Portland because we both worked retail together, and we just started hanging out. So yeah, that's how totally. I know Elizabeth. I also just wanted to give a shout out to Alter because that's like one of my favorite places in Portland. Oh, thank you. Yay. <laughs> um, amazing clothes and super size inclusive and they have great bathing suits. Just this is not a paid advertisement. Just Oh, yeah. Oh, no. The, the Selco bathing suit is like, is it? Totally. Yeah. Anytime someone asks me for a bathing suit recommendation, I'm like, Alter, Alter, here's the <laughs> website. Go now. Um, all right, so we're today, we're going to, even though you have a lot of jobs and they're all very interesting, we're going to talk about fashion shows specifically, which is not something I've talked about on the podcast before. And I think it's this whole fascinating world. You know, people like you say fashion show to them, they think, okay, well, yeah, it's like people walking around in clothes and there's some music and that's the end of it. But there's, it's so much more, right? Um, so, how did you get into fashion as a whole? Because all of your jobs in one way or another relate to that, and more specifically, fashion shows. Um, so I decided I wanted to get into fashion when I was in high school. So I'm originally from San Jose, California. Um, so I went to community college. I went to West Valley, um, and I took some fashion classes there. And then I decided to move up to Portland, and I went to the Art Institute of Portland, and I got my bachelor degree in apparel design and graduated in 2005 uh, because I thought I wanted to be a designer. Right. But, but somewhere along the way, um, I think it was my second to last year, um, I got involved in producing a fashion show called Doomtown. Um, and this was kind of like my stepping stone into producing fashion shows. This, uh, I, this show I produced with my friend Aaron and it was like totally rock and roll DIY. It was at the crystal ballroom. It also had bands like glass candy played at our first show. Yeah. It was like, it was so rad. Um, and it was like all our friends were the models and like, and like we had friends doing hair and makeup. It was like, Super DIY, like, I think this was 2004, so, like, that's kind of how Port- the Portland fashion scene was back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it was so fun, but, like, this, I did this while I was, like, still in school. I was working 30 hours a week at New Seasons. Like, I produced a collection for this show as well. I was like, how did I do all of these things? Like, all at once. <laughs> it's crazy. Seriously. Um, I mean, I guess that's what being in your early 20s is, right? Like, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we continued doing that show for a few years, um, and then we just decided not to do it anymore. Um, it's kind of hard for me to remember everything because this was so long ago, but I think while I was doing Doomtown, I got involved with Portland Fashion Week as a volunteer, like the low, like very low on the totem pole, um, mm-hmm. and I worked my way up, and Portland Fashion Week eventually branched out to a show called Fashion Next, um, and I 
kept working my way up and then I became the person who oversaw the entire backstage operations of that show. It was like a four day long show, international designers. I learned a lot from that show. And then from there, I kind of um, branched off into doing Fade to Light, which is like my my show that I'm the executive producer of and that I created. So I guess that's sort of the timeline. (laughs) (laughs) So what is it? I mean, like I said, a lot of people, they think of like a fashion show and they're like, oh, it's like some people walking around in some clothes, like what could be complicated or hard about that? And you said something to me like, oh, no, all the drama happens backstage. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, my God. So much drama. Um, Like, with with the shows that, like, I'm specifically in charge of, I try to keep them drama-free because I don't like drama at all. I'm not that kind of person. Um, But, I mean, like, the good kind of drama or the bad kind of drama? The good drama is, like, the excitement of the backstage um, because, quite frankly, like, I think watching a fashion show is boring. I think the fun <laughs> part is is the backstage part. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's where, like, your adrenaline is running. Everyone's running around half naked, like, trying to get dressed as quickly <laughs> as possible. It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely a fun time, but it is stressful. So let's talk about, like what it means to produce a fashion show and the work involved in that. Like, when, how does it all start? So I'll talk specifically about Fade to Light. Um, so I start planning that show. I would start, I haven't had, there hasn't been a Fade to Light in a couple of years, obviously. Um, but I would start produce, I would start planning that show about six months in advance. Um, I mean, that's how long it takes to, to do all the things you need to do to produce a show, I would start um, approaching designers. I would get the venue locked in. I would start trying to approach sponsors, um, get like my marketing plan all in place, get all my dates figured out of like, when am I going to do the model casting? When are all the due dates for all the deliverables for the designers? Like they need to get me their logo. They need to get me images. They need to get me like a blurb for the program. Um, you know, and then all the things that need to go into the fashion show as well, like the video and the song and just all all of the things. So there's I have to create that schedule so I make sure I get all of my things on time. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how it works. Does that, does that make sense? I hope it I explained does. it right. Yeah. So, okay, so how do you choose the designers you're going to work with? Well, a lot of the designers are – our repeat designers, like they come back. Um, Fade to Light was a two, was a twice a year fashion show. So a lot of designers, they would do it twice a year because they would produce new collections twice a year. Some designers only would show once a year. Some would show every other year, just depended on when they wanted to do it. And then I would also be always be looking for new designers to show. And then, um, and then uh, especially towards the, like, the end of the show, I guess, um, or the last few years of the show, there'd be a lot of student work as well, which is really cool. And so do do designers make money off of a fashion show? No. No one's making money on a fashion show. <laughs> like, like, I am telling you, like, like, no one's making money doing fashion shows. It costs so much money to produce a fashion show. Like, for the designer, they have to 
produce the collection, which costs money. They have to pay a designer fee. To me, I treat I try to keep it low, but that designer fee goes towards paying the models. Going it goes towards paying like my staff that helped me run the show. Goes towards all sorts of things. You know, like I have to buy food for the backstage. You know, um, and then so the designers have to pay the fee, and then. Fade to Light also has a video component, so they have to pay for that video production as well. So it's like it's a de- it's definitely a cost, mm-hmm. but it can be applied as a marketing cost because they are doing the show to market their newest collection. So that's how it's like so, what the value they get out of it. So it's like an investment, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And then for me, it's like like I had one model. Like, cause I, I, you know, at one time I was producing like multiple fashion shows a year and she was like, oh my God, you must be so rich. And I just started laughing. <laughs> like, no, I am not. Like, that's why I work multiple jobs. It's like, right. <laughs> just doing fashion show does not pay my bills at right. all. And- yeah. Yeah. No one works three <laughs> jobs because they're rich. Like- <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's definitely like a labor of love. You know. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Okay. <laughs> so, like, you start six months in advance, like, booking the venue and choosing your designers. What comes next? Um. Well, the biggest thing is, like, you got to do the big announce. It's like, you got to make everyone want to come to your show, right? And that's that's constant for, like, three months up until the day of the show. Like, like I even have, like, a schedule of, like, I'm going to do a Facebook post on this day, and this is what it's going to be. <laughs> it's like, I have everything scheduled out or Instagram or whatever. Um, and and then another big one is the model casting because you have to do it. I usually do it about two month, one month to two months before the show just so that I have time to, like, go through and, like, pick the models I want and then get all of their information together in a model database that I send to the designers so they have all, like, the photos and the measurements and all that kind of thing. Uh so yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of planning. You really have to like make sure you have everything like sooner than you actually need it, I guess I would say. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, it's like funny, so many like details here that most people wouldn't imagine, like that you have to schedule out all the social media posts and send all the information about the models to the designers. I mean, there's like so much like clerical work involved, you know. Oh yeah. It's it's like it's basically spread it's like it's like staring at spreadsheets. Like that's what most of producing a fashion show is. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about like, right. Yeah, it's like not glamorous at all. I mean, that's <laughs> that's like most fashion jobs, honestly. Like, I don't know why fashion has this reputation as being glamorous because it's really spreadsheet intensive. <laughs> it, it is. And like, luckily, I love I love doing that. Like, that's part of my job at Alter. And uh-huh. I mean, I just love I just love doing that kind of thing for some reason. So I don't mind it. <laughs> so, okay, you said something when we were like preparing for this episode that I have been thinking about since we talked about it. And like now I like every time I see any sort of fashion show content, I like th- your voice saying this echoes in my mind. And you said, if a model has a bad walk, it's all the audience will see and not the clothes. So like you have to be really... I don't know, like, picky about the walk. Yeah, yeah. So, like, like that sounds – I don't know if that sounds shallow to some people, but to me, it's like, if you're a professional singer, you have to know how to sing. If you're a professional dancer, you have to know how to dance. If you're a professional model, runway model specifically, you need to know how to walk. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a specific kind of walk. 
you just know when it's good or bad. That's all. That's all I know. I can see that. I after you and I talked about it, I sent you this video from this yes. like from this like, and this is fashion show in quotes uh, from a reality show that I'd watched, and the guy was walking like a Neanderthal, and it was really distracting. Yeah, it's it's, it's so distracting. It's like it's just all you can see is the model having a bad walk. It's just, I don't know. I just can't handle, I just can't handle it because then like the person isn't paying attention to the clothes, you know, it's like really, but you don't, also you don't want your model to just be like a walking hanger either. There's like a fine balance between like, like the model's personality coming out, which you want, but not like so much personality that it's just like overshadowing the clothing too. Right. So it's like definitely like, it's a, it's definitely a certain skill set that not every model has. Like some models are really good at runway, but not at print. Some some are really good at print, and not runway. And then there's those lucky few that are really good at both. So just take us. It's a certain kind of person that can be a runway model. I think. Oh, for sure. I mean, if I people had to judge me based on my walk, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> I used to like watch every big designer show like pretty religiously for work and I don't anymore but I would I was always struck by like if I would go because I get really nostalgic for some of the 90s shows because they're so iconic and just thinking about some of the like really sassy signature walks that certain models had like Naomi Campbell I always think of the way she would walk down the runway um I I just think it's like interesting because it's like you're right like you don't want them to be a hanger right yeah, yeah. But you don't yeah. want them to be distracting. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's like Naomi Campbell, that's a whole other... I mean, th- a designer's putting Naomi Campbell in a show because they want the Naomi Campbell of it all, you know? Oh, like- <laughs> totally, totally. And, like, sometimes I'm like, is that a fashion show I'm remembering? Or is that that, uh, vid- that George Michael video for Freedom? Oh, my or- God. I was right. obsessed with those... Uh, oh, my God, I was obsessed with those videos. I loved them so much. Yeah, I totally, like... The 90s supermodel heyday, mm. I loved, loved, loved that. It's It was so good. It was so good. I mean, I, I feel like that was when runway shows, this is just my opinion. I'm sure you have much more educated, strong opinion here. But I feel like that was the peak of, like, the big runway shows being just, like, so spectacular. And, like, we had a little bit of that in the early part of the century. But now it's, like, kind of boring. Yeah. I don't really – I haven't really watched anything recent. I know, like, Chanel will always do something crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll have, like, real, like, water with a with sand. Like, it's on a beach or something. Or they're, like, <laughs> that – there's that one where there are all these, like, giant crystals everywhere. Oh, Chanel- okay. Yeah. That's oh, a good one. That was a really, I like, iconic for sure. Yeah. They have all the money though so oh god this is this is a thing that costs millions of dollars like yeah they're not one day yeah (laughs) it's it's pretty wild right yeah so another thing that you told me and like this was just so fascinating to me of course it makes sense but it has to be really difficult to organize is that each designer would get their own hair and makeup look so you would have to assign the models based on that and so you would divide them into groups Yes. So yeah, this is really complicated part, but also (laughs) like a really elaborate puzzle that I always like to solve. Um, So for Fade to Light, and actually for a lot of other fashion shows, um, I would use uh, a school called Beaumont. Um, So it's students doing the hair and makeup, but you know, being overseen by by instructors and Rie, who was like the main person, like I would go to her salon and we would seriously stare at like designers hair and makeup pictures 
like I would probably be in there for an hour or so and we just like rearrange it be like okay we can do this way or this way because it's like basically the show has to start with the most simplest hair and makeup and then it gradually goes into things that are more complex because it's like you can like start with a clean face and then keep adding on makeup but you can't take it away because then you're taking off all the other kind of makeup if that makes sense Um, this sounds like an epic logic problem (laughs) it it, it really is it really is but it's also kind of fun to figure it out um and i've had some designers do some crazy hair and makeup schemes that i'm like oh my god how are we gonna do it but then we end up doing it and it's amazing so uh so yeah it always turns it always it always like works out really well yeah that was so fascinating to me i was like trying to wrap my brain around how that how that would work so you don't do all of this all by yourself like you have people who help you right oh yeah I I think I I don't know if I would be able to do this by myself I think I might I don't know what I would do (laughs) (laughs) so do you want to tell us about some of the other roles that I like of people who work with you and like what they do so I am the executive producer and what that means is I'm overseeing the entire show that includes backstage front of house venue just like Anything that goes wrong, I'm the person that has to deal with it, kind of. So, um, but I have a big team that helps me out. The backstage manager, she is specifically overseeing the backstage, um, mm-hmm. which means, and she also has some assistant backstage managers, but she, she's overseeing, like, all the models, all the designers, um, dressers, and things like that. Um, and she's also calling the show. Basically, she's the person that is next to me, telling the person on the other side of the curtain backstage to, like, push the model out onto the runway. Okay. Hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so the backstage manager does a lot of things. Um, and I do also want to say that every single person that works in the backstage is in constant communication with the designers, the models, the dressers, and me. And I'm in constant communication with all these people as well. So it's like you just need a lot of different people like trying to make sure it go- all goes smoothly. Um, so then there's the assistant backstage managers. I usually have like two or three of them. They'll be pushing the models from the backstage onto the runway. They're lining up the models. They're making sure that everything's just going according to plan. Um, sometimes I'll have a headdresser or that could also be an assistant backstage manager position where um, they oversee all the dressers because we have to have a lot of dressers backstage to help the models get in and out of their clothing. Um, so that's a whole other thing. Um, but the headdresser <laughs> or assistant backstage manager would just make sure that like all of the dressers know how each garment works. So um, like if something's really complicated, maybe they'll do a trial run with that garment that makes Uh, sense i hadn't even thought of that but like there are clothes that i own that i personally am sometimes challenged to get on my body i can't (laughs) imagine doing it for someone else oh god and imagine trying to do it in like two minutes yeah like that's like (laughs) my heart is like pounding thinking about it yeah oh my gosh i'm actually flashing back to this moment um i can't remember which show it was but there was a model who had a really quick turnaround time where she walked for one designer and then she had to very quickly walk for a completely different designer with, like, different hair and makeup and everything. Oh, geez. So there were literally six people on this girl 
like putting into her into a different outfit while there's a hair person like doing her hair and another person like doing her makeup like it was the craziest thing i've ever seen <laughs> uh, yeah i was just like oh my god this is crazy wow but, yeah. wow uh, yeah <laughs> Um, and then I have a front of house manager who oversees like the ticketing, the volunteers, ushers, the, uh, dealing with customer service, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I hope I, I know I'm leaving out some people, but those are like, like the, 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 um, the leadership roles. I mean, this is a lot. Like, you're managing a lot of people, right? And then, you know, yes. like, and the models and the designers. And to a certain extent, you're kind of, like, managing the audience, too. So it's just, like, you have to have a lot of – I mean, in addition to being very good at spreadsheets and being very strategic, like, I'm still – my brain is still trying to solve this makeup problem. <laughs> but uh, I, you're managing so many people. Like, you have to have a lot of really strong people skills to do this. Uh, yeah, um, luckily my team has been working with me for a long time, and so I don't really have to micromanage them, which I don't like doing anyway. They just know, <laughs> they just know what to do, They and they've all worked multiple different fashion shows, and so we just know what needs to get done, which is great, because, like, I don't want to have to be on someone to do, like, something while I'm trying to, like, put out a fire in another place. I mean, the Crystal Ballroom is, like, three different floors, and even though we have walkie-talkies, like I, like I will inevitably be going up and down those stairs like five million times during the day, um, trying to make sure everything's everything's running okay, you know. So, oh yeah, yeah like I like for, for people who are unfamiliar with the Crystal Ballroom, I would say it's probably outside of like stadiums, like the biggest venue in Portland. Like it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. It's like for a sh- for like a regular concert, it fits sixteen hundred people. So it's wow. like, it's, it's a big venue. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's pretty wild. It's it's huge. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I was talking to my husband, Dustin, and when we lived in Portland, he actually did a lot of sound for the Crystal Ballroom, and he totally remembers doing stuff for your show. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He totally remembered that. Um, and yeah, that place is big. Like, they get big bands and stuff. Like, it's it's huge. Yeah. So... Okay, so you're managing all these people. There's so much going on. Um, another thing you mentioned to me is that, like, about a week before the show, you're going to have, like, an orientation for everyone. Like, what does that mean? So, like, so if we have, like, a front of house orientation, um, usually it's, like, the weekend before the show. And that way we can, like, with most of the front of house volunteers, we walk them through the entire venue and we just point out where everything's going to be and what they're roles are because yeah like I said it's like three different floors so some of the volunteers are going to going to be dealing with ticketing some of them are going to be ushers some of them might be working security although mostly security is done by crystal ballroom staff which is great because like they're like big burly people who like <laughs> don't care like what magazine or whatever you work for they like they don't let people backstage, which I which I love because I don't want a bunch of weirdos backstage. No, like. no one does. <laughs> yeah, I like. Yeah, it's like, yeah, don't come, don't come in my backstage. I don't want you. Um, so yeah, so they just need to know how it's gonna be, like what their jobs are gonna be, basically. And then about a week and a half or two weeks before the show, I have fittings when all the models come to the Crystal Ballroom. I usually hold them at the Crystal Ballroom. Um, and we kind of go through a model boot camp where I have a model I used to work with a lot, but she has since retired. Like, she'll come in and she will 
teach and perfect like model walks basically so she'll have all the models walk and then just like try and perfect their walking and then we have the fittings um so all the designers are there fitting their clothing to the models this sounds really really intense and do you have like a <laughs> dress rehearsal because it just seems like literally everything could go wrong i mean think of all the things you're juggling here the hair and the makeup and the changing the outfits and models walking and not falling over and going in the right order and like it's just so so we don't have we do have a rehearsal we don't have a dress rehearsal Whoa. But we, do, we do have it we, we do have a rehearsal um so the day of the show is when we will have the rehearsal um and basically that's when every single component of the show except for the clothing because sometimes the designers aren't there yet um so, because some designers are like literally sewing up to the last possible second, which drives me crazy. But you know, whatever. Um, they, um, the models will come in, and we'll have we'll have all the seating set up and everything, and um, the models will walk in their order to the song that they're going to walk to in the shoes that they will be wearing. That's important. Uh, it is important. Yeah. So we do have a we have a rehearsal of the entire show. Every single segment gets its own rehearsal, and then I also rehearse the like show finale because I want that to be perfect as well and so I literally have the models in a specific order for that show finale because they're like um I should say like for those people who have never been to Fate to Light before it's a horseshoe runway because ah. that's because that's the that's the best way to utilize that room yeah that makes sense like I'm yeah. picturing it yeah 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 so um, so normally they're like coming in, like if you're looking at the stage, they're coming in on the left and then they're going going around and like exiting right. But for the finale, I'll have models coming out on both sides and then they have to like gracefully like cross over with each other. And they and I want them to be like the same distance apart from each other. So it's like I'm rehearsing every single every single thing. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, it's a lot. So I have a question for you, which is not something I asked you before, but it was on my mind as you were talking about the finale, how for so long, like in big, like, you know, luxury uh, fashion shows, the finale would always be a bride, like a wedding gown. Do people still do that? (laughs) So I have only had one designer do that, um, Sonia Kasparian, and that's because she also designs wedding gowns so (laughs) makes sense yeah most designers do not design wedding gowns like most of the designers I have I mean I'm trying to think of I mean oh gosh yeah I've done a lot of that's the most recent example but I think I've done a lot of shows where like the only designers that would show wedding gowns at the end do do specifically do bridal so it's like not every designer does a bridal gown but what was cool about Sonia was that she had her actual clients wearing their wedding gowns in the fashion oh, show. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so that was really cool. Um, yeah, that was awesome. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy 
that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment. I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of April, St. Evans is supporting United Farm Workers Foundation, mobilizing farm workers and their organizations across the country to advocate for more equitable policies. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. 
The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the Eternal City. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. So, okay, there's months of work involved, so many people, so many spreadsheets, so many like really complicated problems to solve. Let's talk about the financial side of the fashion show because, as you mentioned, spoiler everyone, you don't get rich off of throwing these shows. No. Oh, um, my God. And for all the work, like, I feel like you should be getting at least a little bit temporarily rich. So let's break down the expenses. Like, where does most of the money get spent? So models and lighting are the most expensive thing about a fashion show, um, at least for my fashion shows. Um I try and pay the models as much as I possibly can. Um, And if I have like 40 models, that's going to add up really quick. Yeah, that's a (laughs) lot of money. That's a lot of money. And I hadn't even thought of the lighting. But I mean, that's the reality for just about any live show. It's like shockingly expensive. It it really is because it's not, not only are you paying to rent the equipment, but you're paying the people who are skilled in working that equipment. So it's it's really expensive. <laughs> and, and like not to mention like the time it takes to set it up and break it down. So it's just it's a huge expense. Yeah, no doubt. And like, you know, you're also like you were telling me some other things you spend money on, like promo video, backstage foods, the lanyards, the wristbands, the programs. How do you make the money to cover all those expenses? So, yeah, so the aforementioned designer fees obviously help um ticket price like profits from the tickets also definitely help so the more people you get in your show the more money you make um and then i'll also have sponsors and sometimes um people will put ads in the program and so Mm. that's another way i get money for the show that makes sense i hadn't even thought of all of that like these shows are not free for really anyone except for the people who are being paid to be there basically yeah so I am. I, I already know this, but I could have guessed it anyway. You have not done a show in like more than two years now, right? Or yeah. So the last show I did, um, it was called Unmentionable, a lingerie exposition. That's another fashion show that I helped produce with Cassie, who is the owner of Alter. Mm-hmm. Um, we also produced the Alley Thirty for Three fashion event together. Um, but the Unmentionable was the last show I did in February of 2020. And then basically I was planning on doing Fade to Light in March of 2020, but then we all know what happened, like got the rug pulled out from under me. I kind of still traumatized from that. Um, And yeah, so I haven't, I actually did a virtual Fade to Light, I think in September of 2020, which was really great. Um, But I have not done a live fashion show since February of 2020. Are, do you think, I mean, knock on wood, like maybe things are getting better with COVID? Do you plan on starting again? Or is it like too scary because it's like, when will it be safe? Yeah, I mean, quite honestly, 
Like, after I got over the initial shock of Fade to Light being canceled, I was kind of relieved because I was, like, I was just getting so burnt out on producing fashion shows. It's, like, been a really, really nice break for me not having to do them for the last couple of years. Um, Because, like I said, I was, like, doing multiple fashion shows a year, working two other jobs. Like, I'm just, like, tired and burnt out, you know? Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) I was like, I need a break. Um... But for me, it's like I'm still too scared to do a fashion show. Even though things with COVID are getting better, my the thing that I keep thinking about is like once in a while at a, at a show, like a model would drop out or call in sick and it would just like just fuck everything up. Like, oh my God, <laughs> I, it would be I a can't, nightmare. Yeah. Like just one model. <laughs> like imagine if five models like have to drop out because they're sick or they got exposed or whatever. I like I can't even wrap my brain around that. Yeah, right that now. sounds really scary. It's like hard for me to imagine when it will be okay. Like, you know, I mean, I'm I think that like a lot of us like two years into this are like, well, we can't get our hopes up anymore. Yeah, and quite honestly, I'm not really like super crazy about doing another show right away. Like I said, I've it's, I've really liked this break. Um, so, yeah, it's like, I feel like if I wanted to do one in the fall, I would have already had to start planning it, and I haven't. So I think maybe I'm pushing it out to 2023. I don't really know. I kind of don't mind it being up in the air. So, yeah, I, I mean, have no idea. Then you only have to work two jobs. So Exactly, yeah, only two. <laughs> only two. I mean, yeah, I could see. I feel like, I mean, my hope is that 2023 is a better year because, like, it's still too early in 2022 to know, but, like, I think we all thought 2021 was going to be, like, really awesome, and then it wasn't, and so now I think we're all just, like, holding our breath. I don't know. Like, that's my – I'm like, don't make any plans for anything too far in advance. Like, even for me, like, for work, I booked all this trade show travel in January and February, and I canceled a big chunk of it because I was like, it's too dangerous. I don't want to go, you know? Uh and that was, like, all, like, last minute. So I can't even imagine, like, knowing that you have to plan this stuff so far in advance. Like, it's just – I I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle yeah. the stress. Yeah. It's, like – and it's just, like, if I had to cancel it, it would just be too devastating to put all of that work into it. Because it's not just – it's, like, so many different people are involved with with putting on a fashion show – that I just I just can't ask other people to like spend time on it and then have it be canceled. It just I just I don't know, I just can't do it. Not so, not right now. So like knowing that ultimately fashion shows really serve the designers themselves, right? Cuz they get like people to see their work, it's marketing, it's I mean it's a great chance for them to explain visually what their brand is, you know? How are designers doing that without shows for the last two years um i i mean instagram (laughs) (laughs) true (laughs) i don't know instagram i think maybe um yeah i know there there's been some boutiques that have closed sadly because of covid Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of people that keep charging on um i know a lot of a lot of people like i think there's been like small like small fashion shows here and there where like one brand will do something and like It'll be really small um, or like they'll have events in their shop or whatever, like stuff like that. Um, I think, yeah, I think Instagram doing really small events. I think that's how designers are 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 still getting their stuff out there. And like I said, in uh, September of 2020, I did do a virtual Fade to Light, which was really amazing. Um, it was so much less work for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
because what I had the designers do is I just had the designers like shoot a longer video ah. than they normally would uh, for fade like for fade to light. Usually it's like thirty seconds to like a minute and thirty seconds or two minutes or something. But for this one, it's like oh no, you can do like a five minute video and like make it as weird as you want. Um, and the designers like really really produce some really great stuff and. You know, everyone filmed during the summer, so, like, all, all the shoots were outside, uh, so they were safe. Um, like, I did a promo video for it, and, like, all of my shooting was outside as well, so um, that was really fun, and then it was, like, you know, and then people just watched it at home, but I think I would love to do another one, but I don't know if there's, like, the market for it. I don't think people want to sit at home and watch a fashion, a virtual fashion show I mean, like not right now. I think, I like... I've just noticed in the past like month or so that maybe even a little longer that people are like, oh no, I'm getting out there. Like we, you know, I live in Austin and South by Southwest, like people came here to see shows like, you know, for the first time in like two years. And I think people are ready to get back out there, even though they might not understand the risk that anyone putting together these events, whether it's live music or a fashion show, like the risk that they're taking on basically by attempting to do it you know yeah it's like like I went to a show at the crystal ballroom a couple weeks ago I saw sparks um and it was a packed sold out show it was crazy but like everyone was wearing their mask it's it felt safe so I'm just like you know at some point it's like like I'm vaxxed I'm boosted I had COVID I just want to like get on with my fucking life but like (laughs) in a in a safe way, you know. Right. What I mean? Yeah. So no, I feel, like, feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I think like doing a live show like that, it's a little easier because um, maybe there's less people involved. I don't know. And then if the band cancels and whatever. Um, but yeah, fashion show, I feel like there's so many more people involved. Oh, I just can't yeah. It out. <laughs> yeah. Totally. You got models and backstage people in front of house people. And I mean, it's the more people are involved, the more it could go sideways for sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, like, since the beginning of the pandemic, there have been 9,000 think pieces written about how the pandemic has affected fashion. And I've, like, you know, I remember in the beginning, it was like, now everyone's going to wear sweatpants for the rest of the time. It's the end of fashion. And clearly that did not happen because, like, that's never going to happen. But I was wondering, like, you mentioned how, like, a lot of boutiques in Portland have closed. And, you know, you've been, like, such an essential part of the Portland fashion scene forever, you know? I mean, like, didn't you used to even write a column for Portland Mercury? Yeah, I did. Um, I did write. I was one of the writers. Um, Like, after Marjorie Skinner left the Portland Mercury, I took over. um, I was one of the people that took over the fashion column. I would write a column, like once a month and then I would do blog posts as well so yeah I was like oh there's like there's my fourth job (laughs) (laughs) so it's like you you have lived through I mean like in the early aughts when you started doing shows like that was like fashion was just starting to like become a scene in Portland so you've you've seen it through a lot of different changes and times I was just like wondering like what do you think is happening in Portland right now with fashion um, I like, I kind of don't know. <laughs> I'm, like, really bad at following up with people because, <laughs> yeah, I like, all I know is, like, the company I work for, like, I know what we're doing, and I think a lot of other companies are, like, in a similar position as us, mm-hmm. um, where we're just, like, trying to charge on as best we can. Right, Like, it's right. been, it's been really hard, um, I think for every single person designer in Portland it's been really hard but um 
But yeah, we're all just like keep trucking along, just like pivoting in whatever way we can. Like maybe most of our sales are online now, like, mm-hmm. you know, like doing lots of stuff online. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't really have a good answer for that. Well, no, right I now. mean, I think that, that <laughs> that's like the best answer because I think that that's kind of where everyone is right now. Yeah. You know, like unless you're like a big brand, a big designer, even still, I'm sure things are weird and unpredictable and nerve wracking. But like everybody I know who owns a boutique or has a line, you know, anywhere in the country right now is like, you know, some of them really successfully pivoted to online, which it seems like Alter did as well. But then I have tons of other friends whose stores had to close they or their line had to stop or they just had to start doing their line like in their house, you know, like, like it's, it's been really, really challenging for like, like smaller indie designers. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, it's easier for a smaller brand to pivot because you don't have to go through corporate or whatever. Totally. It's just like literally three people are working there and everyone's just like, yeah, let's just do that now, you know? <laughs> um, but, um, and for a bigger brand, it's like, must be, it must be so difficult. And then also you have like, all that inventory that you don't know what the hell. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seriously, I mean, you definitely could see like the crazy fire sales for a while there with oh, a lot of the God. bigger brands. But it seems like, I mean, I, I'm that person who always tries to see like the positive in any situation, and I do feel like it's really like the the designers and the brands that are going to come out of this are going to be like stronger and better than ever, and probably like more efficient and less wasteful. You know? Oh, yeah, totally. Because it's like, you're like, okay, I need to cut my cost. Here are the things that I don't need anymore. Here's how I'm going to cut my cost. Maybe part of that is cutting labor costs, but, um, you know, which always sucks, but it's like understandable because a small company has limited resources, especially a company, you know, that's not backed by a VC or whatever. Totally. Like, I, don't think, I don't know of any small brands in Portland that are are backed by that kind of thing. Everyone, Everyone's pretty much just doing it themselves. Totally, totally. I mean, I did work for a Portland brand that is backed by VC, but I don't think people think of them as like a fashion brand either. So yeah, yeah, totally. Um, okay, so, you know, one thing you and I were sort of talking about before is like, what do we think the future, like, when it's time to start having fashion shows again? Because I just, I don't think they're going to go away. Like this is, it's an experience, right? It's art. Yeah, and I mean, I hope they don't go away. And, you know, I do want to do fashion shows again in the future when I feel like it's... I feel like I'll know when I'm ready for it again. Totally, totally. I don't want to rush into it and then... Because, like, you know, towards, like, I think in 2019... End of 2018, 2019, like, I was actually starting to hate it. Wow, Um, that is so interesting. But, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's a grind. Yeah, and, like, I, I have... I have this thing where a few years ago I said to myself, like, I want to produce almost every single fashion show in Portland. And then it happened. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, fuck. No, this isn't really what I want. <laughs> this is too much. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I said, like, t- being able to take this break has been really great. But I do, I do, like, I do still love it. I'm like, I feel, I feel like I'm good at it. I know people want me to do it again. So I will. I just don't know when. So, yeah. I mean, in your future vision of shows, like, how would you like to see them evolve? 
Well, I definitely want to see more inclusivity. Um, I've always tried to have, I've always had my fashion shows try to be inclusive, although there are limitations to that. Um, because with these small designers, they're only producing like one size of a sample and not all of these designers do plus sizes, which is fine. They're a small brand. It's expensive to invest that money in doing plus sizes. I know because I work for a company like Alter offers up to size 6XL. Mm -hmm. So it's like expensive to invest in that, but it's like really amazing when a company can. Right. So it's like... Yeah, I think I think I want to. Tr- I think designers are trying to be more inclusive, though, um, as much as they possibly can. Again, like I only work with really small designers. I'm not working with with big designers that have a bunch of money. Which <laughs> right. I still don't understand why like big designers don't invest that money in getting extended sizing. I just don't understand it. Like if we if Alter can do it, anyone can do it. Oh my god! This, seriously, <laughs> I was just editing an episode that will be out before this and you know that's like something I said in it I know all these people who are small makers or like Alter I know you guys like make things to order you're doing all the sizes and like I know that Alter doesn't have a ton of money in the bank or like a huge team and it's like if they can do it or like one person on Instagram can be doing it like why isn't everyone yeah exactly just like come on come on people but get it um, together yeah but um You know, and basically, like, going back into model casting, um, before I even did the casting, I would ask designers, like, what are your specifications for your models? And they would tell me, like, the specifics of, like, I need them to be about this tall, like, this size, whatever. I'm hoping that maybe um, designers will be a little more fluid with that, like, maybe get some shorter models, um, because that's, like... Because that's, like, one of the main things is, like, the model's got to be tall, you know? So yeah. maybe maybe we can, like, lower that height requirement <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I'm, like, five feet tall, so I, I get it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, and then, yeah, so maybe that, um, or hopefully that, I should say. Hopefully more inclusivity, definitely. When you look back at all the shows you've done, what was your favorite show or your favorite designer to work with or just, like, the I don't know, the one you were the most proud of. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is, like, so hard. Well, actually, I should say um, in the September version – or September 2019, Fade to Light, I did this segment. Um, it was, like, an avant-garde segment that I kind of produced because I wanted to have a little more creativity. Like, like I love doing the spreadsheets, but also I'm, like, a creative person, and I wanted to bring some of that creativity into the totally. show. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, I did this avant-garde segment um, where I was, I was, obs- or I still am obsessed with Ravel's Bolero. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. He's, like, totally yeah. obsessed yeah. with it. And so that was, like, my inspiration, and the models walked down the runway to that song, and I had the designers, um pull the inspiration from that song to make one um, original piece for that segment, which was really cool. That's so cool. I love yeah, that. And, and then I had, um, I take dance classes at Body Vox, And so I had my dance teacher, Sarah Parker, um, we created, we did a video of her in an altar outfit that we showed on the screen. And then she actually came out and danced on the runway before the models came out. It was like really, really cool. 
Wow, that's so great. So I like, um, I've had other designers like bring in dancers, bring in live bands. Like I actually performed with my Susie and the, and the Banshees cover band for one designer. Um, like I've had designers bring in a lot of different like live elements and I want to like keep that and keep bringing more of that into the show. Like I want to, I want to make it weirder if I can. <laughs> I mean, this sounds amazing. You're making me excited for future shows. Yeah, totally. What would your parting message be to everyone, whether it's about fashion shows or fashion in general or just something that's on your mind that you want everyone to know? I would say, like, maybe people think that fashion shows are frivolous and maybe they're, like, elitist or, like, non-inclusive. And I, I will say that some fashion shows are, but I think just like seek out the ones that aren't. There's a lot there are a lot of really cool independent brands, independent producers, like they're all doing really rad things and we're we're all trying to like do it the best we can. So I think there's like there's there is a value in fashion shows um and like improving how we can how we can produce them in the future. I mean, I love that. I think it's true, you know. I think that We've forgotten that fashion is actually like an art form, and fashion shows remind us of that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it, it it should it should be a crossover of marketing and art. Like if it if it veers too much into one thing, <laughs> then it's like sometimes it's just too weird, and you're like, I don't even know what's happening right now. But then if it's like too heavy on the marketing, then I'm like, this is fucking boring. Like, why am I here? Like. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think that's a really challenging balance because, you know, the goal is to get the brand out there and show the clothing, but it's also to like convey who that brand is, who that designer is, like what their what their taste is and like what inspires them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I really, really think that um, like I hope that my shows really give designers the platform to show who they are and like get as weird with it as they want or maybe not as weird with it. Some designers just want to like show their clothing and their and that's it, which is totally fine, <laughs> which I love because if every designer was being super weird, then that would veer into the like, oh my god, this is super weird. <laughs> yeah, it would be a lot. It would be a so, lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you got to like find that balance of like of having all the things. So it's like a well-rounded show. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you're making me excited to see shows again. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm actually getting excited, but I still have that thing of like, uh, I can't deal with five, six models. Like, I can't. I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, in a year, maybe you'll be like rested up and ready to do it again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. This was so fun. Thank you. Thank you again to Elizabeth for taking some time to explain how fashion shows really work and to imagine, which I love doing, how they could be even better in the future. I'm making a promise here and now that I will get myself to Portland for Elizabeth's first post-pandemic fashion show. Portland remains a super special place for me, and to be honest, I developed a lot of my own ideas about style, fashion, and sustainability from living there, just just being there, surrounded by so many talented and stylish people. I may as well tell you that I actually fantasize 
basically on a daily basis <laughs> about doing a live show there in the not too distant future. And yeah, I'm not ashamed to admit this. I've already got my theme and guests picked out. Just, you know, nothing else, like where it'll be or if anyone will come or when it will be or any of those details, but like all the more fun, lofty stuff, totally dialed in. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to share a bunch of links to Elizabeth's work in the show notes. Please go check them out and learn more about her and see what she does next, because I personally can't wait to see what she does next. Also, just going to plug again. This is not sponsored content. Please check out Alter, uh, where Elizabeth works. Also, just a really incredible place to get a nice bathing suit that will last you a long time in just about every size. And lots of really other so cool, slow fashion clothing. Okay, this episode is going very long, and I have to turn off the AC to record, which isn't a fun time on a 97-degree spring day here in Austin. So I'm going to cut it off here so I can turn on the air conditioning and, you know, Hutch can stop sweating. I'm going to leave you with some questions to ponder rather than answering them here because I don't know the answers completely and I want to know what you think. We can talk about them more on social media this week. How do we reclaim fashion as an art form rather than as a, as it is now as a big, gross industry? Does that mean we have to give it a new name? I I love inventing a new name. <laughs> and while it's well and good for us to know that these style rules are cruel consumerist bullshit that just makes everyone feel like crap and then go shopping, how do we get others to realize what we already know? Think about that, and we'll talk about it more in the future. We always do. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. Written, researched, edited, recorded, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and maybe go extra and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Most importantly, recommend it to a friend. That's that's how we spread the word, right? If you'd like to support my work here on Clothes Horse, please check out patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. And thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.